please be seated. Amen. Thanks, Darren. Good morning. So good to see you. Welcome. Always love Baptism Sunday. What a day. So, so, so good. Um, would you open up your Bible with me to the book of Mark chapter 12? That's where we're going to be spending some time together now. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you. There are some Bibles on the seats in front of you, so feel free to grab one of those. Like last week, we're not going to have the words on the screen because we just want to get in the habit of opening up the Bible for ourselves, and so I encourage you to do that now. Um, again, there's seats or Bibles on the seats in front of you, or if you have a phone and the Bible app, you can scroll along with us. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 is where we're going to be, and we're continuing the study we've been doing for a few weeks now in the Gospel of Mark, where we're looking at this book of the Bible and just walking through it section by section, really desiring to hear what God wants to say to us in the words and the life of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, the Barna Group conducted a research poll, and they found that more than 80% of Americans believe in some kind of afterlife. More than 80%. More than 8 out of 10 people polled believe in some kind of afterlife, meaning maybe it's reincarnation, maybe it's some form of heaven, maybe some other expression of the afterlife. But 8 out of 10 said this life is not all that there is. There was another 1 out of 10 people, about 9% of people, said, I don't really know, maybe there is something, I'm open to it, but wouldn't really... Uh, land on anything specifically, which left only one out of ten people saying that there is absolutely nothing that comes after this life. Only one out of ten people. I actually thought that number was rather low, and let's even say that over the years since this poll has been taken, that number has been increased a little bit. Still, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of Americans would say that this life is not all that there is, and that there's more to come after this. The problem is that when we talk about the afterlife or what's to come, there's widespread confusion and misconceptions, even among Christians who, who believe in Jesus and believe in eternal life with God. Many of us have uh, all kinds of notions about heaven that aren't necessarily from Scripture. And so uh, today we have an opportunity through Mark chapter 12 there's this passage that's talking about the resurrection to come and eternal life, and it gives us a chance to really jump into the conversation and see, okay, what does the Bible actually have to say about this, and what are the things that we've made up or that we've kind of gotten confused about? So we're going to jump in together here in verse 18. Let's take a look. It says this, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, with a question, him being Jesus, of course. So this group of Jews uh, is a new group to us, right? The Sadducees, we've been introduced to the Pharisees in previous weeks, and maybe we've heard a lot about the Pharisees. And last week we talked about the Herodians, these different kind of groups of Jews. But now we're introduced to another bunch, the Sadducees. And it's their turn to come to Jesus with a question and to try and trip him up. And it's interesting because you think people would have learned by now, right? 
Like week after week, section after section, people are coming up to Jesus and we're going we're gonna to confuse him and we're going to make him look bad. We're going to shame him publicly and they come to him and he's just like Jackie Chan out there just karate chopping all of them and sidestepping them and judo. And he's like, wow. And all the people are amazed constantly. And his opponents keep getting embarrassed. So you think they learned by now and yet here we are with another group saying we got to deal with this Jesus guy. These other clowns couldn't stump him, but we will. So they jump in. Now, a few notes about the Sadducees. We don't know a ton about them. They were few in number, and yet they were rather influential in the first century world. They were wealthy, aristocratic. Many of them were uh, chief priests uh, of the, the temple, and so they had oversight of the temple in some sense, and especially the concessions that were done in the, in the temple. So as they were selling animals to be sacrificed, it was the Sadducees who oversaw that process, and they actually were profiting a good amount from their sales. If you remember, actually a couple weeks ago, Pastor Lee preached in that section where Jesus is in the temple and he's overturning tables and he's mad at the money changers because they're taking advantage of the people who have come to worship. And he says, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer and here you are making it a den of robbers. He's speaking directly to the Sadducees who would have benefited from that entire system. And so they're not very happy with Jesus coming to mess with them. Maybe they were okay when Jesus was messing with the Pharisees. They kind of snicker about how Jesus was making the Pharisees look silly. But now he's on their doorstep, and he's challenging them. And they don't like that. You remember last week we talked about how the gospel comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable? Well, the Sadducees were comfortable. And they had a lot to gain from keeping the status quo Verse 18 also reminds us that this group didn't believe in the resurrection. Do you see that? And this isn't speaking about the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, because obviously Jesus is still alive and talking to them in this passage, and so that's not what it's speaking about. It's looking to the future. See, most Jews believed in a resurrection to come, a future resurrection where God would vindicate his people. He would raise all of the faithful to new life and give them new bodies, and they would live in his renewed, good, created world to come. Most Jews believe this, and we should as well. The Bible teaches this. However, the Sadducees, you notice, didn't. So in a sense, they were focused on this life, thinking, well, this life and what we can benefit and profit from now is really what we should care about. And so with that, they come to Jesus. In verse 19, we see their question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So verse 23, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were all, excuse me, were married to her. Hmm. It's an interesting question. They're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25 and the law of Moses that uh, explained the custom of leveret marriage, which was where, as it said, if a man dies 
and his wife is left behind, and there's no kids, then it was the responsibility of a family member, of the brother of the man, to marry the widow and thus raise up kids for her. We don't really practice this today in the West that, that I know of. Uh, but in this culture, this served a purpose. This was at a time where it was quite difficult, nearly impossible for women to provide for themselves, to take care of themselves financially. And so they relied on their husbands or their children, their children's families, to take care of them, to protect them, especially in old age. And so this custom in the law here was a provision that would protect women from being left uncared for and left on their own. And so the Sadducees think of this scenario. Say, hey, you, you know about this practice, Jesus. And so let's say this happens and a man dies. And again, like, like the law says, the, the brother marries the widow. Okay, good so far. But then that guy dies and there's no kids left after that death. And so another brother marries the same gal. And then so on through all seven brothers, all seven die. No kids there, and then ultimately the woman dies as well. It's a really happy story. <laughs> it's heartwarming. Disney's probably not going to make a movie out of this. They're not interested in the rights to this. And so verse 23, his question, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The seven married her. They're like, this will get him. This will stump Jesus. This will make him look bad. Do you see what they're doing? With this question, they're trying to make the whole idea of this future resurrection look silly. They're trying to make it look absurd, this whole concept of the afterlife and the, the resurrection. I mean, look, Jesus, you do the math. Seven men, one woman. And so if the resurrection is true, as you believe it is, and everyone comes back to life who trusted in God one day and are going to live with him in this world, then how's that little family situation going to work out, Jesus? Looks rather complicated. How's that going to work? So Jesus responds in verse 24. He replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus comes at him strong. He's, he's playing hardball. Let me tell you where you went wrong. You don't know your Bible, and you don't know the power of God. No beating around the bush. Let's just call it what it is. He comes right at him. And then he says, when the dead rise, which they will, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. Got to spend some time unpacking that verse. What exactly is he saying? They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It seems like he's saying that in the age to come, when those who trusted in God are made alive again, life will look different than it does now. He's saying, you guys are assuming that there's complete continuity between now and the life to come. And he's actually saying, what's to come will look different than it does now. And one of those differences, he seems to say, is that marriage will no longer be needed. See, biblically speaking, let's think about marriage together. Biblically speaking, there are three main purposes for marriage, and they all start with the letter C, which is convenient for a preacher. The first is children. So marriage is here for childbearing. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see that men and women, or the man and the woman are brought together, and they're given a task. What's their job? 
be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. We want a bunch of image bearers of God running around. Make some babies. I didn't bring you together just to shake hands and look at each other. Okay, you got a job to do. I want the world to be filled with image bearers of God. So have, have children. Now, of course, we can be sensitive to the fact that this isn't a possibility for all people. And certainly, uh, infertility is a real struggle for some. And that's brought a lot of grief and sorrow into people's lives. And so we should be sensitive to that issue. But we should say just in general, this is part of the design of marriage, that image bearers, that children are to come from it. Second, see, it's companionship. Companionship. We also see in Genesis 1 that the man and woman are, are brought together as partners. Again, in this job to do, they have to uh, work together. You see there that Eve is described as Adam's helper, not meaning uh, servant or kind of sidekick or someone kind of lower down the flow chart, uh, but as, as an equal, as a co-heir with Adam, responsible to obey God and to see God's purposes happen on earth. And so together, they have this calling. So marriage provides intimacy and companionship on this journey of life. And the third C, so we have childbearing, we have companionship, and we have Christ. Third purpose is to display Christ to the watching world. What I mean by that is found in Ephesians chapter 5. It outlines what marriages are to look like, and there it explains that the mystery of marriage the union of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is to display, to put on display for the watching world, a picture of Jesus' love for his church. And there he walks through how the husband is to reflect or demonstrate the self-giving, sacrificial love and leadership of Jesus for his people, and how the wife is to display the love and the trust of the church in how she respects her husband. And so in marriage, we have this picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Our marriages are like signposts pointing us to the greater union between God and us. This really beautiful picture. And so if those things are true, then why wouldn't there be marriage in the resurrection? Why would Jesus seem to be saying that there will no longer be a need for marriage? it seems like those three purposes will have been fulfilled when the life to come reaches us or we reach it. Think about it. No longer will there be babies born and new children, right? Scripture doesn't give us any indication that that process will continue. And the companionship aspect that a husband and a wife enjoy will be in some way uh, eclipsed or, or give way to the way that the entire family of God is perfectly united in joy and serving God as one body, one big family of God, and the displaying Christ peace, if you think about it, the union of God and his people, which marriage pointed to, will be realized. We will be with God forever in eternity. And so the signpost of marriage pointing to the destination is no longer needed because we've reached the destination. And we will be living with Christ as his people will have arrived. And so I think this is 
kind of a hard truth for some of us. Maybe confusing, maybe we still have more questions, I get that, and maybe sad for some of us because our, our marriages and our families, uh, for many, form such a, a tight bond and are so central to our, our meaning and joy in this life. And so I'm not saying that our, our memories of that will be gone or that there won't be some kind of special connection shared with our nuclear families, but it's just saying that something even greater than our individual marriages will be realized, and that is our life with God and the perfect unity of the family of God that we will then enjoy. It's greater than some, even what we can imagine or, or think possible now. But with that, with verse 25, there are especially the comment about the angels. There's some misunderstandings that we have to address. Okay, he says that in certain respects we'll be like angels in heaven. Those areas are probably the fact that we won't die. We uh, will not marry or have children. We'll worship God and enjoy fellowship with one another like the angels do. We'll be with God. But he's not saying... This is important. He's not saying that we become angels. Sometimes we have this kind of commonplace theology that when someone dies, they become an angel with God. Or maybe you've heard that sentiment that heaven gained another angel. We maybe talk like that at funerals or when someone we love has passed away. Heaven gained another angel. And um, I understand the sentiment that we're trying to, to say with that comment. But just strictly speaking, biblically, that's not accurate. That's not what happened. Angels are distinct beings, and human beings are distinct beings, and so humans don't become angels. So that's not what this is saying. Also, he's not saying that we will no longer have bodies. Like, we'll just become purely spiritual beings floating around like angels. This is probably one of the most common misconceptions that we have today about uh, the afterlife and eternity, that we'll just be spirits floating around on a cloud, maybe with a harp, hanging out for forever and ever. We'll just be freed from the physical material world. And I remember as a, a teen thinking about that, and I was like, that sounds awful. Like, that doesn't sound great being in a never-ending church service in the sky, floating on cloud. Like, Thanks, God, but I just don't know how enthused I am about that reality. Maybe, maybe you can relate. The good news is that the Bible doesn't teach that. And actually, that thought comes more from Greek philosophy and the philosophy of guys like Plato that have really influenced the thinking of the church throughout the centuries with a kind of dualism that says the material world is bad and kind of icky, and kind of that's where the real problems lie. The, the real stuff of life, the, the real thing that matters is the spiritual world. That's what's important. And so death is actually a good thing because you can escape the physical world and go off to the spiritual world. But again, that's, that's not biblical. That's uh, Greek philosophy, cased in kind of Christian terms sometimes because we see, according to Scripture, that the material world is not inherently bad or icky or evil. It's actually inherently good, right? Genesis 1, God created everything that is and then declared that it was good. And yes, affected by sin, but originally created good. And then in Romans 8, 23, it actually tells us that we who hope in Christ are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. We're awaiting new 
redeemed, glorified bodies that eternity will spend in a, in a physical world, not just as spirits floating around. So there's a few quotes I want to share with you that kind of bring to life this idea and help us reimagine what the scriptures are, are teaching about eternal life. The first comes from uh, Tim Keller. It says this, the book of Genesis tells us that when God made this world, he looked upon the physical creation and called it good. He loves and cares for the material world. The fact of Jesus' resurrection and the promises of a new heaven and new earth show clearly that he still cares for it. This world is not simply a theater for individual conversion narratives to be discarded at the end when we all go to heaven. No, the ultimate purpose of Jesus is not only individual salvation and pardon for sins, but also the renewal of this world. The end of disease, poverty, injustice, violence, suffering, and death. And so the climax of history is not a higher form of disembodied existence, but a, a feast. We'll sit down in the kingdom of God at his table and enjoy life and fellowship with him. Another author, Randy Alcorn, put it this way. He said, in the new earth, there will be natural wonders. Animals, trees, rivers, cities, houses, and architecture will laugh, eat, and drink, tell stories, make crafts, build, garden, care for animals, play, enjoy sports and physically demanding activities, tend and manage and rule the earth. We'll collaborate, research, invent, read books, and write them create and perform dramas, compose music, and perform it all to God's glory. Why, he says, because we will still be physical beings created in God's image, which means we're creative and intelligent, and we will be restored to a new earth without sin and death to fulfill God's original plan of stewarding the material universe to his eternal glory. This is confirmed when we look to the last two chapters of the Bible. I encourage you to read them if you haven't. Revelation 21 and 22. The picture that's painted there of eternity is not us going up and away, floating off to be with God, but the picture is God coming down to be with us. The picture is God coming down to renew and redeem this world and dwell with God his people. And so when Jesus says we will be like angels in heaven, he's not saying we'll just be floating off, off and away forever. Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses the account of the burning bush? How God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So after Jesus addressing the little marriage scenario and how they were uh, misunderstanding the teachings of Scripture about the resurrection life to come, he says, now let's talk about the fact that you don't even believe in the resurrection to come. Saying this in verse 26, and he points back to the Exodus narrative and the interaction between Moses and God. And see, an interesting fact about the Sadducees is that they only looked to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, as authoritative or as truly binding. And so the rest of the Old Testament 
and the uh, oral law of the Pharisees were not so important. And so Jesus says, okay, you only accept the first five books. Well, I'll play ball. And so let's talk about those first five books. And Exodus is one of those books. And so he's going to this portion of Scripture that they would recognize as authoritative. He says, I'm going to make my point about the resurrection to you from that place where they would likely have to agree with him. And so verse 26, he says, haven't you read in the book of Moses? Haven't you guys read this story? How God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so what's his point? He's looking back to that story and he's saying, when God revealed himself to the patriarchs of the faith, or excuse me, when God revealed himself to Moses, he pointed back to the patriarchs of the faith, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he could have said, I was their God, but now they're dead. But he doesn't say that. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at the same time, it was accepted that uh, death annulled a covenant. Death annulled a covenant. So if, if you were in a marriage or some kind of business agreement and one of the members of the agreement died then the other member, uh, the other party, would be freed from the obligation to fulfill the covenant. So death annulled a covenant. But the way God is talking here about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus points out, is that he's still identifying as their God and implying that he is keeping his promises to them. He is still upholding his commitment to them, upholding his covenant with them, which means if death annuls a covenant, but the covenant hasn't been annulled, the agreement is still in place that they somehow continue on in existence. So God is the God of the living. And so what's his point? His point is that for those who have trusted in God, his commitment to them continues beyond this life. Saying for those who have trusted in God, his commitment to them continues like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So with us, his commitment continues beyond this life. And we know that this is true today on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection of Jesus. We know this is true and possible because of the work of Jesus. He's the hero of the story. You see in Mark chapter 12, he's just days away from his death on a cross for our sins. He's just days away from the resurrection, his own resurrection, where God's power over death will be on display. And you notice that the resurrection was bodily, right? It wasn't just his spirit floating up and away, that his spirit kind of left the, uh, the tomb no, bodily, he physically came back and he showed them his body and he was walking and eating and talking. So his resurrection gives us hope because our hope is that what happened to Jesus will happen to us if we trust in him. See, in John chapter 11, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, will live even though they die. The gospel tells us that, of course, we are sinners, 
We all have turned from God. We all are dead in our sins. We all have rebelled against God, cut ourselves off from him, and because of that, we await judgment, condemnation. We rightfully deserve these things. And so if we continue without Jesus, if we continue to go our own way and don't repent and place our faith in him, then we have only death and judgment ahead. These promises of resurrection, of of new life, eternal life, specifically being reconciled to God, are for those who believe, for whoever would put their faith in Jesus. That offer and that invitation is there for for all of us, for whoever would look to Jesus in faith. Because though we were all, all, all of us, dead in our sins, God, in his great mercy, made us alive with Christ. And in love, he saved us by grace through faith. So whoever puts their faith in Christ is rescued from judgment, saved and reconciled to God. And so if you're here this morning, know this, that God loves you. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you, to take your sin away, that you might be forgiven, washed clean, given his new life in you, reconciled to the Father who loves you forever. If you're here this morning, you haven't put your faith in him, I would encourage you to let today be that day where you respond, where you turn from your ways and you turn to Jesus, recognizing your need. And when we do that, when we respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, he transforms our hearts. He gives us new life, his spirit in us. We enjoy fellowship with God now and the hope of eternal life with God forever in his good, renewed world. As Jesus ends his comments to the Sadducees in verse 27, you notice he says, you are badly mistaken. He realizes, or he knows, that they don't believe in anything beyond this life, thinking this life is all there is, and he says, you're badly mistaken. Many of us can relate to the Sadducees. Some of us, again, will just outright say it, I don't believe in anything after this life. Consider ourselves atheists or maybe agnostic. There's probably nothing more. Okay, But some of us uh, claim to believe in eternal life, claim to believe in the resurrection life to come, claim to follow Jesus, and yet our lives don't always reflect that. We may say that we believe in eternal life, but then our actions communicate something different. And this happens in a number of ways. Sometimes we let worry so soak into our hearts that the outside world looks at us and it looks as if we don't have hope beyond this life. And I know that a lot of us deal with anxiety and that's a real thing as I'm not trying to just uh, make a brush with too broad of a stroke or say it's just easy faith, but just this truth of the resurrection and eternal life to come should give us great hope and peace, right? That, that no matter what comes in this life, no matter what comes, we'll be secure in Christ. Our lives are in his hands. 
We truly have nothing to worry about as we look ahead because forever we'll be with God in his renewed good world, a place with no death or suffering. We'll be enjoying him and one another forever. Some of us maybe don't struggle with worry very often, but maybe we struggle with other things where we kind of just spend our money on ourselves, right? We think that this life is all there is, so I need to just get as much out of this life as I can. So I'm going to pursue all the best experiences I can and have the most comforts in my home and do things that I want to do because it's really just about now, so I better have fun. And so we spend our money, we fill our calendars just with things that we enjoy just for ourselves rather than doing what Jesus called us to, to sacrificially give of ourselves for the good of other people, to pour ourselves out in faith that there is a good world to come that we'll be fully satisfied in, that we'll enjoy forever. And so we can just give and give a giveaway now for the good of others. Again, some of us, our priorities are mixed up. We think that this life is all there is, and so we fill our time and our schedules with, with things that we want to do now, not with an eye to the bigger picture or what God wants to do, or that we're going to stand before God one day and give an account of how we spent our lives, and we say, sure, I'd love to take more uh, you know, steps at church or grow in my faith or read more, do whatever, but I'm just, I'm just so busy, just with so many other things I got to do. And I know that we only have so much time in our week, I get that. We can't say yes to everything, but the question would be, are we saying yes to the things that God wants us to say yes to? I think for some of us, this not living like the afterlife is true shows up in our lack of urgency to share the gospel. Just believe that, I guess, well, I don't know what (laughs) we would believe that, that people are just, everyone's going to be Okay, we don't believe that we're going to all stand before God and that, yes, God loves us, but he calls us to trust in him. And so if we don't trust in him, there's judgment ahead. Do we really believe that? And if we do, shouldn't we be motivated in love to, to share the good news with our neighbors and friends that they might hear about who Jesus is, that they might experience the love of God? Sometimes we spend more time keeping ourselves comfortable before we get to heaven than we do helping other people avoid hell. And so is there an urgency in our lives to love people and and share the gospel and call people to know Jesus? Do we pray for those opportunities? Do we pray for people? Do we live like the resurrection to come is true? Again, I struggle with these things as well. I struggle with being comfortable, with becoming complacent, with just enjoying this life. But the scriptures show us there's more to it. What would it look like for us to be a people that really lived that the resurrection to come is true? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. It challenges us. Jesus, you push us and you, you love us and welcome us and call us to receive salvation as a free gift, but at the same time, you then call us to give away everything for you, to follow you. This is uncomfortable for us, Lord, but we're not here to be comfortable. We're here to really hear from you, and God, your word shows us what you have for us, so help us, Lord. 
Help us live like these words are true. Help us truly sacrifice, Lord, for the good of others, for your glory, and put you at the center of our lives. We need your help. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.